Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. Why do humans crave more? Why can't we ever seem to get enough? Addiction is the extreme end of this idea that why can't we get enough? There's more hope for addiction than people think. And this is more important now than ever because you're starting to see overdose deaths are off the charts. And I also think too that we misunderstand what addiction is. It's not just drugs, it's all sorts of behaviors. It's even behaviors that society thinks are good. Overcoming bad habits usually has a greater effect on your life than adding in good new ones. All right, so like bad habits are the break on your progress more than good habits are the gas. People feel like they're a bad person for doing a lot of these things that we consider bad behaviors now. And the reality is, is you're not. It's you're just doing something very natural that always worked for humans forever. And it's just that the playing field has changed. Changing bad habits is very possible. I've seen it everywhere and it doesn't matter what it is. I don't think that anyone can't change something, whether it's you're eating way too much, whether it's you're like me and you were drinking way too much, whether it's drugs, whether it's gambling, whether it's you buy too much, whether it's insert any million other bad habits a person could have today. Change is possible for sure. It starts with kind of understanding what the underlying mechanics are and getting to the sort of deeper reasons. And that's not always gonna be easy, but I do think it is very worthwhile and rewarding. Happiness probably will never be found in sort of these, you know, the next meal, the next purchase. It's ultimately comes down to realizing that there are things bigger than yourself and it's being willing to sort of engage in the search and the struggle and being willing to ask bigger questions, being willing to get to know yourself better and just try and help other people. I mean, that is ultimately the message that sort of gets embedded in all these different religions. It's not gonna be some, you know, the next car, the next whatever it is. And that it's gonna be hard, but if you focus more on just doing the next right thing, you're probably gonna look back and find yourself happy. Hi everyone, welcome to The Gabby Ree Show. On this show, we discuss the complex topics around relationships, health, fitness, family, business, and so much more with the world's leading experts. My goal is to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using in your life today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life can be challenging. So let's try managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, life is just one big experiment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is author Michael Easter. His latest book out is called The Scarcity Brain. His last book, maybe you remember, is The Comfort Crisis. And he's at it once again. He's observing just us, the human being, in this biological way and saying, okay, So here we are biologically talking about the scarcity brain or scarcity loop, for example, which three components have to exist in order for there to be this loop. One is you have to have an opportunity. So for example, like you can use a slot machine. Okay, there's an opportunity, something can happen. The second thing is a random reward. I know I'm going to get something, I don't know when and I don't know how much and it needs to be quick and repeatable. So Michael really sets the table for conversations around how this biology, scarcity biology really served us 
in nature a long time ago, but that we have such a mismatch with the world that we live in. And how do we navigate that better? Whether it comes to food, relationships, social media, dealing with getting outside, wanting more, things like that. Because for me, I feel like once I'm aware of something, I can stop beating myself up for like, why do I have that impulse in the first place? I go, oh yeah, yeah, that's natural. I can move on from that. And then I can try to make better choices that serve my end goals. So whatever that is, whether it's for my work or my waistline or something going on with a partner, just that awareness that Michael is so good at bringing in his work where it's like, let me show you all the in-depth biology, but also let's talk about it in a really simple way. And here's some achievable and simple practices that you can put in to your life today and make kind of that terrain easier to deal with. Um, I, I really appreciate his openness. He shared in his last book, In the Comfort Crisis, his own kind of wrangling of alcohol to the ground. He started his using it as a social lubricant. Like a lot of people, he's a little bit more shy and then, you know, turned into something else. And he talks not only freely about his own experience, but in scarcity brain, he does a beautiful job of talking about that. It's not a life sentence. So for somebody battling addiction, a lot of times someone will be like, Oh, something's wrong with your brain or something is wrong with you. And that's not the case. And he goes into depth about things that you can do to rewrite your habits and change your environment and do things that support and serve you even better. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. And I really am looking forward to you hearing Michael Easter. Let's dive right in, Michael. Yeah, let's um, do it. I'm, I'm sorry you couldn't be here in person, but um, last time you were here, we talked about the comfort crisis. And um, are you currently in Vegas? Are we allowed to say? I am currently in Las Vegas. Yep. You know, humans aren't supposed to live there, right? I am well aware of that every time I step out my door from May to September. I guess it's good for writing books. Though. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Strange place. Fun, fun, interesting place to live. That's for sure. So with, with scarcity brain, I, I know that you're, you're a person who like with comfort crisis, it felt like you had a cathartic experience and through your own process and you share it very openly, your story of, um, you know, sort of exploring what discomfort brings to you, whether it's boredom and imagination or just, you know, all the myriad of things that you learned through that process. I'm curious, what was the impetus for writing this book? Cause I'm sure something happened and, uh, why? Yeah, it was a few things. Um, one is that I started thinking about it right around the time that the pandemic really took off. And it was, you know, the, the time of the pandemic when people are hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizer and fighting in aisles. And, you know, I just kind of made this observation that it's like when we all thought that these things we needed were scarce, people went crazy and they started hoarding things. And then what happened after that initial sort of everyone goes crazy is that everyone's sort of sunk into a low level of craziness where you saw people gain weight, you saw screen time spike, you saw uh, compulsive shopping rise, you saw compulsive gambling rise, you saw all these behaviors sort of have this little uptick. And um, as someone who writes about health and behavior and improving your life, I've always been really interested in bad habits and how you can get over bad habits because I do, I think that overcoming bad habits usually has a greater effect on your life than adding in good new ones. All right. So like bad habits are the break on your progress more than good habits are the gas. <laughs> yeah. 
and uh, living in Las Vegas as well, this is a great town to study bad habits because the the town has been effectively engineered to push people into these repeat behaviors that uh, can hurt them in the long run. Fun in the short term, bad in the long run. And that eventually just led me to start thinking about this topic and do all sorts of investigations from Vegas to Baghdad, Bolivia, all these different places, trying to get to the bottom of this idea of why do humans crave more, more or less? And why can't we ever seem to get enough? It's funny, though, because I, I was, you know, the the art and we'll get into it, the artificial or this the sort of man-made casino for studying that was done by people. I, you know, I like how you phrased it, that it's, it's not, uh, we, I don't want to talk to people that want you not to gamble. We're trying to, I want to talk to the people that want you to gamble. And I, I have to tell you what you said, as I get, as I have more of these conversations, I think is true to everything, which is not about adding more things. Every sort of successful uh, or success program with people I've talked to, whether it's doctors or, you know, health advocates or whatever the area is, it's actually them taking the things out that are keeping you from being successful rather than going, here's 10 new things that you need to do. So I really appreciate that it also comes across um, even here. So what was the starting point and, and why... You know, we all know that biologically we're sort of hardwired to be anxious and want more when we can get it. But there is such a thing as a scarcity loop and scarcity kind of payoff system. So maybe is that why you said, okay, we're going to just, I'm calling it as a, as it is scarcity brain. Yeah. So to answer, um, you kind of alluded to the casino lab, which, so that all came about because living in Las Vegas, you see all sorts of strange things, but the strangest thing to me has always been slot machines because they're everywhere. It's like gas stations, bars, restaurants, grocery stores, the airport, and people play them around the clock. And this doesn't really make that much sense, right? <laughs> Everyone knows that the house always wins in the long term. And so I want to know, okay, like, why the hell do people play slot machines? Why do we do this irrational thing that eventually milks us for all our money, more or less? And um, so I start to talk to these researchers who are sort of anti-gambling researchers. And they tell me all these kind of wacky ways that, you know, casinos get you to gamble more. And it's like, oh, they don't have clocks. And slot machines only play in the key of C. And casinos don't have any right angles because right angles, uh, the quote was like, thrust you up against yourself as a decision-making person. I'm like, okay. But it's very simple for me to fact check this stuff because it's like I live right by casinos. So I just go down to a casino and it's like, there's right angles everywhere. So that doesn't make sense. And yeah, no, casinos don't have clocks everywhere. But neither does any other business. Like, it's not normal to just have clocks in Target or Costco or wherever it is hanging off the wall. And then I call a uh, slot machine designer and I ask him, you know, so do you only use the key of C? And he's just like, where the hell did you hear that? Like, that right. doesn't make sense. So as you alluded to, the problem is, is I am asking uh, the question to people who want us to stop gambling. <laughs> and the reality is, is I got to talk to people who want us to start gambling. This is like the classic, you got to follow the money because money always takes you to the best answers. And long story short, this leads me to this lab, which is uh, on the outskirts of Las Vegas. And 
the casino industry, along with a bunch of other uh, technology companies, has effectively built a living, breathing, cutting-edge casino. Everything about it is a casino, except for the fact that it's used entirely for human behavior research. So they're figuring out how all the slightest, subtlest tweaks to you know casino layouts from what happens in the hotel rooms and the restaurants affects behavior inside casinos. And while I'm there, I end up talking to a slot machine designer to bring it back to why the hell do people get hooked on slot machines? And uh, he basically goes, yeah, the clock, the music thing, that, yeah, that's all BS. He goes, people gamble uh, basically so we can thrust ourselves into this three-part behavior loop that I call uh, the scarcity loop. So it's got three parts. The first is opportunity. The second is unpredictable rewards. And the third is quick repeatability. So I'll break that down. So opportunity, you have an opportunity to get something of value. In the case of the slot machine, it's money. Uh, unpredictable rewards too. You know you're going to get that thing of value at some point, but you don't know when, and you don't know how valuable it's going to be, right? So with the slot machine game, it's like, I could lose, I could win a couple bucks, I could win $500,000, I could win some crazy amount of money. Uh, and then three, quick repeatability, you can repeat the behavior immediately. With slot machines, people play 16 games a minute, which is more than we blink. Now, the reason, <laughs> it was crazy. The reason that this thing is uh, being researched, not just by gambling companies, but also by tech companies, is because you can put this loop in a lot of other products, institutions, and services as well, and you can get people to repeat things pretty easily with it. So it's what makes social media work. It's what uh, makes sports gambling work, the rise of mobile sports gambling. It's what makes dating apps work. It's being put in gig economy jobs. It's elements of it are in the food system. I mean, it's just put in so many different things today. And I think it explains a lot of why we now spend so much of our time, money, attention on, <laughs> on devices, but also in these other experiences that can end up hurting us in the long haul. What before technology, what were the things that people would get sucked into uh, the scarcity loop? Like, was it sex or like, what were the things if we didn't have all of this technology and, you know, we've been kind of gamified, our world has, you know, these people know this and they do it accordingly. Um, what were the ways that we did it, you know, when we were riding horses? Yeah, pretty much. Anything that gave us a survival advantage in the past and required some sort of search. So this could be food. This could be possessions. This could even be trying to get status over another person. Um, it's all a search and it's all, you're not sure if you're going to get the thing. So I talked to a guy whose name is Thomas Zental and he's a super old school uh, psychologist. You know, he's like 80 something years old and he still is in the lab every single day. And uh, he told me to, picture people finding food, you know, our ancient ancestors. So you know you need food or else you're going to starve, right? So you go to one place, there's no food. Crap. Got to repeat. Got to go to another place. There's no food. Got to go to a third place. No food. Fourth place. Ding, ding, ding. Rails line up. Jackpot. You find food. And your survival depends on playing that really random rewards game and repeating it every single day for the rest of your life in order to survive. So that's why we seem to be um, inherently attracted to that system because it was just part of life for all of time. And it still is for 
for us today and for all animals, really. So all animals will fall into this scarcity loop, which is a really fascinating part of it too. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like after being in the space of self-care or wellness or whatever we're calling it for this many years, you start to realize that um, we're not really ultimately set up for what we call now success. We were, we right. were set up for survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and now we live in such a funny upside down world that's not aligned with our biology and we're trying to be, and I put in air quotes, successful. So connected to people, make a living, healthy, you know, all these things. But actually the environment we're navigating is filled with landmines for us at every turn. Yeah. The way that I like to explain specifically with these behaviors that fall into the scarcity loop, whether it's, you know, you get hooked on these like Instagram binges, um, whether you're just super attached to email, can't quit checking it or your finance or whatever it is, right? Or you, you binge eat, you can't like keep yourself on the rails with certain foods. I like to explain that it's not really your fault because that behavior for all of time, for humans, it always made sense. It always kept us alive, right? Uh, but it is your problem today. And that means you do need to take a certain amount of action to change your behavior. But I do think that realizing that um, it is just sometimes our ancient brains and <laughs> bodies work against us. I do think that that can at least absolve people of some guilt because I do think that people feel like they're a bad person for doing a lot of these things that we consider bad behaviors now. And the reality is, is you're not. It's you're just doing something very natural that always worked for humans forever. And it's just that the playing field has changed. And now that doesn't make quite as much sense. Yeah. And that's, and, and I, I really appreciate setting the table that way. I mean, I'm all about personal accountability, but sometimes I think having a little bit of a map of understanding just what you're, what you're sort of up against gives you even more information for better strategy. Um, because you talk a lot about, um, you know, we, we mentioned status, uh, you know, and, and that sometimes it's a conflict, but how all of this impacts our food and, and our diet, you know, our nutritional behaviors. Um, and it's, it's interesting from your view and after everything that you went through, cause you, you traveled a lot and talked to a lot of people, where do you think this bites us the most? Do you think it's the time we spend on technology or do you think it's really in the food area? That's such a great question. I had someone ask me a similar question and I had to think about it for a while. And I think it comes down to how are we defining, how are we measuring this really? If you want to look at it in sheer terms of, you know, number of years lost, I mean, I would imagine it would probably be, be food just because um, our modern food system is so linked to the diseases that kill us now. So uh, something I talk a lot about in the book is heart disease because um, that is the thing most likely to kill people. Like you have a coin flip's chance of dying from heart disease. It's the by far the biggest killer of modern humans. And when you look at what people are worried about and what people frantically Google, afraid that they have, it's not heart disease, not even close. People are worried that like, you know, I got this pain in my side. Oh, it's definitely cancer, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, 
they're worried about violence. Heart disease is by far more likely to kill you than those things. Um, and even the media puts so much more um, coverage on other things than heart disease. So it's kind of like this creeping specter that is what's going to kill us, but we just kind of ignore it. On the heart disease, why is that? Because there's things you could actually do in your lifestyle and you could prevent that. And that's that's too slow and weird for people. Like, what is it? Because you you went to visit uh, that, uh, what was it, the Chimani tribe? Is that, yeah. did I say that right? And yeah, they you did. Have, Good job. They have no heart disease. Yeah. So once I... Once I kind of realized, like, oh, heart disease is what kills us. It's also what we don't really think about. <laughs> I've come across this paper and um, basically found this tribe in the Bolivian Amazon called the Chimane. They have the healthiest hearts ever recorded by science. So they basically don't get heart disease. Uh, they don't get a lot of other ailments that kill us, too, like Alzheimer's and different stuff. So I traveled down there to meet them. And, um, you know, you got to fly into La Paz and then you drive 12 hours to this jumping off point in the jungle and then take a canoe like six hours upriver. You're in the middle of the jungle. I mean, it all looks the same for like six hours. And then finally, you know, the person pulls off the boat driver and you get out and like there they are <laughs> in the jungle. And so I stayed with them for a little while. And it seems like a lot of the reason they don't get the diseases that kill us is it tracks back to food. And the thing that's interesting about what they eat is that at some point it's going to offend every sort of modern fad diet that we've been told is like the key to perfection over the last 40 years. So it's, it's not vegan. It's not necessarily low fat. It's not low carb. Um, it's not paleo. It's not like, you know, it's got corn in it. I mean, how many diets are like, oh, if you eat corn, you're going to die on the spot. <laughs> right. And, uh, what the real commonality is, is that all the foods they have just one ingredient. So it's fish, it's fish, it's uh, red meat that they hunt. Uh, they'll eat white rice that they grow themselves. Uh, they also eat a lot of corn that they grow themselves and they'll even eat sugar. Now, the difference is that when they, when I want sugar, I go to like 7-Eleven and I get 44 ounces of it in like a Slurpee. And when they want sugar, they have to go into the jungle. They got to cut, cut down the sugar canes. They got to bring them back to this thing to like juice the sugar canes. And it's like a manual press. You got to walk around and they're not getting that much sugar out of it. Right. So they're not going to be eating that much. And so I think that really what the takeaway is, is that there's something about foods that just have one ingredient that make them harder to overeat. So to bring this back to that idea of the scarcity loop, there's this guy who's an exec in the, he's a food industry executive. And he basically said that if you want a food to sell really well, it's got to have three V's. It's got to have value. It's got to have variety and it's got to have velocity. So that's just exact other way of saying the scarcity loop. So it's good value. It's relatively cheap. There's, it's got to have a lot of different flavors and there's ideally there's a lot of different types of the food. So like, you know, 15 different Doritos and different flavors. Um, and then velocity, you have to eat it really fast. And when researchers lock people in labs and have them eat diets that are unprocessed versus highly processed, 
Everything else is the same about the food, except for that. The people who eat the uh, highly processed food end up eating about 500 more calories per day. And that's probably just because the food is really quick to eat. You don't really know when you've had enough of it. I heard a great food scientist on a 60 Minutes interview say, and it it makes me think of the chips, well, we design things to hit the palate harder than anything ever is created in nature, but also to leave very quickly to your point of repeatable, but also, you know, so it's like, of course, that's going to lead to overeating. Um, the, you know, like when you mentioned the corn, for example, you know, corn and even oats right now, like it's scary between, you know, with oats and the glyphosate and corn with who knows how it's modified or engineered. But if you're doing it right, it, these, you know, these are beautiful foods. Any behavior speed kills. Like the faster you can do it, the faster you're going to do it, the more destructive it's going to be. You see that with, with, for example, slot machines, when slot machines really start to realize, oh, speed is how we make money. You don't want the behavior to be slow. If we can speed up this behavior, it's going to work faster. Like the revenues just go through the roof. Same with food. When we start to hyper-process our food, that it becomes much quicker to eat. You start to see you start to see uh, our weight just go up in this crazy curve where something like eighty five percent of people are going to be overweight or obese in the U.S. by twenty thirty or something. I saw some projection. So, look, it's like <laughs> it's one of those things again to go back to why do we eat so much and why do we eat this food? It's like that would have kept us alive in the past, right? Our brains are tuned in to love sugar, salt, fat, crispiness, whatever the combination is. And um, eating the way we do now would have provided a survival advantage when food was scarce. But the difference is that food is no longer scarce. It's it's down at the 7-Eleven in the form of the 44-ounce Slurpee I mentioned, along with a million other foods you could buy just there alone. In your in your personal story, you sh- you shared in the comfort crisis that you know for sort of like for social lubrication, you you would use alcohol. Now that you've, I'm just so interested. Now that you've gone through you know all of this, and every time you do a book, you have to you're doing interviews, uh, big interviews. You're on you know doing like even the morning shows and all these things. I'm curious what because I think a lot of people feel so, sort of not as comfortable as they would like maybe. Um, and it, and it seems in certain ways harder, um, cause we live in a bigger world. You know, you talked a lot about for forever we're with 150 people or so. And then now we live in an unlimited universe and people you don't know can have opinions about what you're doing. What happened to you, to Michael as a person that not only did you start feeling comfortable, but now you're, you're, really have come into your own in this other way. What, what things did you do um, that enabled you to, to make that kind of transformation? Mm, I don't, I mean, I definitely had to stop drinking. <laughs> that was yeah, step well, that, one. That usually never <laughs> goes to, for, it never ends usually well, but. Yeah. Um, and I will, to be clear, I'm a person who like, if you're, if you have a couple drinks every now and then, I don't, I'm not talking about that kind of drinking. I mean, I was the type of well, no, drinker you, where yeah. if you have one, it's like, well, if one's good, what would 17 be like? 17 must be awesome then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was in the short term, not in the long term. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I would say that 
you kind of just have to expose yourself. And I want to be clear that I don't, I'm not entirely comfortable in most situations. I would say that I'm more comfortable. And I had to learn how to be more comfortable uh, by just putting myself in the situation, because I do think this really is a, another case of our ancient brain going on the defensive. Because in the past, if all eyes were on you, that could be bad. That could be everyone in the tribe going, yeah, I think we've had enough of you. <laughs> See you later, dude. Uh, so we're attuned to just, you know, not like that, not like that sort of attention oftentimes, especially if it's, you know, sort of public speaking, public things. Uh, but obviously, in the context of my work, it's not, you know, people trying to shun me from society and maybe spear me and whatever else. It's, uh, yeah, tell us about your book. Tell us about whatever. And your brain's still going to react in that bad way, but you got to realize by putting yourself in there, like it's going to be fine. You kind of have to trust yourself and accept that these sort of performative things we have to do today, whether it is, could be anything from speaking to a thousand people on a stage to like, I met this nice person on match.com and I got to go, you know, have dinner with them. Like that is often experienced at the same level of anxiety, depending on the person. Uh, we have to realize that, you know, we're not going to die. And frame things as an opportunity. Um, this is, I heard actually this really useful quote, and it came by way of Lane Norton, who is a, yeah, you know who he is? Yeah, yeah. It came by way of him. Wow. And he, he got it from some <laughs> UFC fighter. And I guess the UFC fighter was getting anxious before fights. And um, he told himself, he's like, Oh, you're getting you're getting anxious because like you give a shit and you're alive. Like that's the feeling of being alive that you like you're in the fight and you're like trying to win it. And it's like all of a sudden, for whatever reason, that just flipped it for me. It's like this isn't a defense mechanism. This is because like I give a shit and this is like something I'm passionate about. And like you can flip it into this feeling of that you're alive and well, like that was helpful for me. I'm not saying that's going to help for everyone, but I find I found that helpful. No, I, I really appreciate that because it, it is always inspiring to watch people share their story and, and sort of say, here's maybe some of my tendency, and yet I can build in these things or have new ideas built around it so that I can conduct myself a little bit differently that inevitably has a more positive impact, not only on my life, but now think about this, you go and do this research and you can share with people information, whether it's, you know, in, in this book or comfort crisis. And so it's, um, we all win, you know, you understanding yourself and the way you can make yourself comfortable enough to put it out there. It's a, it ends up being a win for everybody. And I, I think it's this interesting combination for people where I always think, Nobody really cares but me. So when I get anxious or uncomfortable or over weird on myself, I'm like, listen, nobody really cares but me. And the other flip side of that is, uh, how do I want to participate? What do I want to contribute? So it's, it's, it's moving in out of both, right? It's putting enough like, no, no, you have a responsibility. You got to contribute whatever that looks like and is organic to you. And simultaneously, it's like, Nobody cares that you, you know, whatever you tripped on the stair on the way up to the public, you know, talk. So I think it's, it's kind of having that flexibility, um, in there. So I, I just was curious now when you, when you take on a project like a new book, like scarcity brain, 
how do you get led? So I understand going to the casino. I understand, you know, going down to be with the Chamani, but I mean, this took you to some very unusual uh, places. I mean, you, can you, can you tell me about when you uh, went to the Middle East and what, why did you do that? I mean, that seemed scary. Yeah. Um, so that was for a section that looks at addiction because to me, addiction is the extreme end of this idea that why can't we get enough, right? That is the absolute extreme of it. It's a behavior you do over and over and over, even though in the meantime, it's destroying your life. And, um, in Iraq, in the Middle East, in general, so I go to Iraq. And the reason that I went there is because Iraq didn't really have addiction for a very long time uh, because Saddam ruled with an iron fist, basically. And then the U.S. invades. They overthrow Saddam. And there's a war for a lot of years. And this war causes, you know, you have an entire country that lived through a war. So you got a lot of people who have had some legitimate trauma. And then what ended up happening is the country of Syria, which is uh, bordering it, fell, and they turned into effectively a narco state where they produce a ton of this drug called Captagon. So you start having, so you get three things. And so this is kind of a different take on addiction that I think um, we've traditionally heard of. Traditionally, uh, in the US, we've either thought of addiction as being a sort of moral failing, so an addict is a bad person or as a brain disease. So a addict is someone who has this, you know, problem with their brain, this incurable problem with their brain. And I think Iraq shows that for addiction to rise, you need a person who is in some sort of pain or discomfort internally. They need to not have a good outlet for that pain or discomfort, some other outlet. And then you need a product that can quickly and easily relieve that discomfort. So when those three things meet up, you start to see addiction rates rise significantly. And um, this is at odds with the traditional way we've looked at addiction, but I think that it tracks when you look at a lot of the research and you look at a lot of experiences in the past. And so to answer your question about why did you go to Iraq, I think because that's where addiction is really blooming and happening now. And I think it stands for this larger um, idea that I came came upon. I mean, could I have tried to find a place like that in the US? Maybe. But I think it was, I think for me as a journalist, um, I want to go to the best places for my story, no matter where they are, uh, to places where I can really understand something, affect things, and show the reader, I guess, something maybe they weren't expecting. To your point, you you sort of say, well, we have this belief. And a lot of times I think people that have uh, these issues think they're doomed and sentenced to this to battle it their whole life. And you say quite the contrary in the in the book. And it, it almost seems like to, you know, OK, so what is bothering you? Do you have an outlet? Can you heal that? And how successful people can be also when they change their environment, you know, that the, these sort of environments can also breed kind of this repetitive behavior. Um, so this section of the book, I, I really, um, I thought was important because even, uh, forgive me if I get this wrong, DSM five, where they're talking about, well, where does it live in the brain? But it's sort of like, you don't, it doesn't live in the brain in one spot necessarily. The NIH has traditionally thought of 
well, since nineties has thought of addiction as a brain disease that, um, you know, an addict has some problem, uh, with their brain and there's, they had some brain scans that led them to believe this. But I think the problem is, is that they haven't really been able to prove where does addiction lie. And they've also looked at data and said, okay, well, it's a chronic and relapsing disease that basically if you are an addict, it's more or less a foregone conclusion that you are going to relapse. And once you have this thing, you have it forever and you're kind of screwed. And oh, by the way, we don't actually have a medical cure for it. But the problem is, is that when you look at actual human experiences, so a great example is uh, in the Vietnam War, something like about 20% of U.S. soldiers in Vietnam were addicted to heroin because you're in a war zone, there's heroin everywhere. It's like, well, this place sucks and heroin might make it better. So you get all these uh, soldiers who are using heroin. So President Nixon, he goes, I don't want all these addicts coming back into the United States because this is going to cause problems. So he starts this program that he calls Operation Golden Flow. And it's pretty simple. It's like, if you want to come back to the U.S. from Vietnam, you have to produce a clean urine test that is drug-free, and then you'll be able to come back. And so if this idea that, you know, a person who's addicted to drugs has no choice, it's chronic and relapsing, you would expect that not many of these GIs would have made it home. But the reality was the complete opposite. The vast majority of people passed the urine test, came home, and once home, only 5% of them relapsed. And the people who did relapse tended to have been drug users before they went to war. So what this suggests is that the soldiers were actually making a rather rational decision, which is like, well, I am in absolute hell in war, and this is a product that allows me to escape from this hell for however long it might be, you know, an hour or whatever. And so they're using this thing that makes their life better. And I think that that is one of the things that often gets missed about drug use or alcohol use is that whatever it is, even though it's an irrational behavior in the long term, a person with a substance abuse disorder, if they're using, like that will solve your problems immediately in the short term every time. Like it's a, it's a rational decision in the short term and people use drugs for a good reason. It's usually because it makes them feel better somehow. It allows them to escape from problems. It enhances their life. And really once, a, once that behavior becomes addictive is when it creates long-term problems, but then it becomes harder to get out of because you've been doing this thing that improved your life for so long, but then it started to turn, but you can't really see that when you're in that. And I can tell you that because I've been there. And eventually something has to happen where you go, oh, like this is, this is the issue. And I need to, I'm going to have to actually do some things that are tough in the short term in order to get out of this. Yeah. And I, I just thought, especially even coming from you, that, that, that part of the book also felt equally as important because it, it did have a very hopeful feeling to it. And, um, and I, and I love that there's just a lot of data and science to back that up. I also appreciated that, uh, you know, I grew up in the Caribbean where people, they know how to drink there. And, um, so I, I, I sort of avoided that my adult life just cause I, I, as a kid, I remember being like, Ooh, that story seems a little wild. Um, but that originally, and I like kombucha, so it's like, okay, fermented alcohol that it could stimulate people. First of all, they could smell it. 
right? Because it's fermented. And then it, 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 tell me if this is right, is that it could also encourage people to eat more if they had some of this fermented fruit, alcohol, and sort of for leaner time. So that even within that, there might've been some biological reasons why it could support us if done the way it was supposed to. I mean, I argue in the book that when you look at the history of substance use is that humans evolved to use substances because it enhanced their life. Like the case of alcohol you just gave, it's like when a fruit would fall from a tree, it starts to ferment. That would allow us to not only find the food, but also encourage eating more of it because of this effect called the aperture reef effect. Uh, but also things like, like coca leaves, which is, which are now used to make cocaine, just the actual coca leaf itself contains such low levels of the active ingredient that it would usually just hone our focus, um, allow us to persist on like a really long hunt and allow us to survive. And you see that being the story with most substances. Now, the, the issue is that in modern times, we've taken all these things and scaled them up, right? So we've taken the, the part that is psychoactive and concentrated it and then put it to scale and we just have an abundance of it. And that um, can sometimes backfire. Yeah. And you, and you talk about that. So, you know, we talk about it in food and, and in gambling and, and uh, addiction, but we also talk about it in technology and um, just sort of now this is a new player kind of in our horizon in the last, what is it, since 2008, something like that, right? 2008, 2007, when the smartphone really yeah. became alive. Um, yeah, the iPhone. Yeah. And you said, uh, what I, what did you say? In one day, we now consume um, as much as people, I think, 700 years ago did in their entire life, and that we really have this sort of mis mismatch with our reality and our biology. And I found that that almost seems unbelievable. It's crazy. I in mean, one day, then they yeah. take in their whole life. Yeah, information. Yeah. I mean, I think it tracks when you think of, think of you, we have multiple screens on. We're going from story to story. We're on Twitter. We're on, we're driving down the highway and there's a million billboards. And um, yeah, so humans evolved to crave information because in the past, information would have given us a survival advantage, right? If you knew when the storm was coming in, if you knew where the animals were, if you knew all these different things, you were probably going to survive. And we still have that brain that wants to know the next thing, that wants to resolve any uncertainties in this world where, one, there's information everywhere, but information is also a lot more ambiguous now. Like if you're, if you're hunting for food, like you either kill the damn animal or you don't and you, you survive and live on. But today, there's so many questions about, I mean, let's take food, for example. It's like, okay, well, exactly what diet is going to lead you to live to 100? It's like, no one knows, right? <laughs> no one knows. But if you go on the internet, there's a bajillion places where you can find all these different answers. And I think things are much more, uh, a lot of the big questions in life are very ambiguous. There's this guy, uh, Russ Roberts, who wrote a book called uh, Wild Problems that I love because it talks about like the most important questions in life are there's no clear answer. You can't measure them. Um, 
but we want to know for certain, like, what is the answer? Because that's just how our brains are wired. And I think in the context of today, any given question you have, you can go on Google and find a bunch of different answers and search and search and search. And you're like, oh, I got it. I'm going to keep searching. Oh, I got the next one. Right. And so it very much falls into that scarcity loop where we just keep consuming and consuming information. And we might have more knowledge now, but I don't know if in our day-to-day life, we have necessarily more understanding and know exactly, you know, how to use that or how to deploy it in a way that enhances our life and doesn't stress us out or waste our time or insert any other issue. Obviously, it's not all bad, but... No, and it's also thinking about the more for the sake of more, you know, and and you talk about this in the book, like stuff, even more for the sake of more. And I know that's part of, uh, again, another biological impulse we have. But it is interesting when you when you go through the process of living and learning that way versus just consuming it from from a device. It's it's very different. And and, uh, I, I think somebody clarified it for me once, which was the difference between knowledge and wisdom. I also think, you know, wisdom is, is earned and it's a feeling you have inside like, oh, when I've done this, this seems to really work well. And you have this sort of your own understanding of it versus people have so much knowledge now. And, um, yeah, but maybe is it that sense of understanding and relationship to yourself and how you would implement it into your world, into your work, into your, you know, relationship with your friends or lovers? It's like, I think we, we have less of that, um, of that kind of w- wisdom. And, and you, you say like, Hey, we don't even go into worlds that we don't know anymore because, you know, we used to step into these unknowns and now we don't really do that so much. Yeah. Yeah, in the book, I talk about really we are a species that is amazing at exploring. So no other animal has explored the world like we have. We've, you know, we took over the world in basically 50,000 years. And then once we'd taken over the entire world, we go, all right, well, let's see if we can get up into outer space. Oh, great. We did it. We're on the moon. Let's see if we can go down to the deepest reaches of the ocean. Like we just never stop. And ultimately, I think we do that because there is this promise of greener grass and the unknown and these new experiences that have the opportunity to enhance our life. But I think put it, put in a world where you can Google everything. It's like, we want this information, but we also want to be certain about it. So you're starting to see today where anytime you do something new, you can Google it and figure out what is this going to be like? And I think that that takes away a lot of the authenticity and rewards of our experiences. Whereas in the past, you couldn't Google. You just had to like go to the place and have this totally unmediated in the present moment experience. Whereas, I mean, let's take a really stupid example, like restaurants. It's like, if you're going to go to a restaurant, it's like, okay, well, what's its star rating? Okay, well, what does this guy say? What is it? Okay, let me look at the menu. I got to figure out exactly what I'm going to order, right? (laughs) And I think everyone does that. But the problem is, is, I think so many reviews online, like they don't give you the real picture. I mean, if a restaurant has like a zero out of and has 500 reviews, you can be pretty sure it's bad. But if it has like a four or above, it's like, who the hell knows? Like, is it really going to, is a 4.4 really better than a 4.6? It's like, no, but we think it is. And so I think that that can change how we experience life. I think that for me personally, 
after reporting this book, I just do, I try and not look everything up before having an experience. It's like, just pick a random restaurant and go. Like you could find a gem. Yeah, it could be terrible, but you could find this gem and that gem is yours. It's not this gem that you found from like Yelp or whatever it is, right? And it's like, that's kind of your experience that you had that's really, even though it's small, even though it's silly, there's something about that that I think is rewarding and changing in a way that is maybe not great right now. This podcast is brought to you by OneSkin. Now, OneSkin is a skincare line that I learned about a couple birthdays ago because my dear friend Heidi gave it to me. And I always rely on Heidi to just kind of keep me up to date on really the latest and greatest. And this is what she gave me. She gave me OneSkin the face cream. I actually now use the eye cream as well, but this is what I started with. And I'll tell you, I noticed right away, first of all, I love the way that it goes on. It's easy. There's not a ton of fragrance and it didn't feel chemically. But after about 10 days, I just started feeling just this kind of thickness. I don't, I don't know how to explain that, but when your skin feels like maybe it's holding the moisture and it's hydrated, it looked even. And what they did was Well, first of all, it started by four female longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience studying the biology of aging. And I'll tell you what, if I was a scientist, I'd be studying that too and trying to make cream too. And after testing over 900 peptides, they discovered OS1. And the OS1 peptide is scientifically proven to target aged, also called senescent cells, the main source of skin aging and actually reduces the biological age of skin by several years. And they've got third-party clinical trials to show this. And it can even slow down aging in younger skin. So this is the other thing I like. It's not just, okay, this is for mature skin or for young skin. It's like, it can support what you've got and also help you even when you're younger. And their flagship product, OS1 Face, the first one I had, is clinically validated to improve firmness, see, fine lines, and overall tone and appearance. The other thing I like about this is that it can be used on its own or you can combine it if you've got another favorite routine product that you're doing, but it's how simple it is. I don't want another eight to 10 products and routine. I know we're all busy and I don't think more is more. I think having the right few items that really support whatever your goals are is the way to go. And it's vegan, it's cruelty-free, it's fragrance-free. And I really appreciate that. You know, I don't want to feel like I'm slapping a ton of chemicals on my face because in the long run, I know that's not going to be better for me. And it's got the skin safe seal of approval, meaning it's suitable for even the most sensitive skin. I noticed too that my husband would grab it. So it doesn't feel like it's only for women or it's a male skin. It feels like this is a really good product that's been thought about. For example, they've got a, they've had done a third party 12 week clinical study and it was performed by something called the CRO or the contract research organization. And OSO one face was clinically proven to strengthen the skin barrier, improve skin health markers and diminish visible signs of aging. So wrinkles were diminished in 87% of the users. And I just, I think for me, when something is good, then it can be good for you. If you're a little younger, if you're a little older, if you're male, if you're female, they've really done their homework and put the best in class ingredients into one skin. And it's the world's first skin longevity company. One skin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root causes of aging. So skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. 
So if you're interested in starting, you can start with new face, eye, and body routines at a discount rate today. You can get 15% off with the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y, at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O with the code Gabby. After all, we've only got one body, one skin, and we do have the opportunity to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. This podcast is brought to you by Maui Nui Venison. I've been ordering from Maui Nui for over three years. I have the Ohana membership, which by the way, there's a limited amount. So if you're interested in this, I would get on this right away. I talk all the time about the value of trying to get enough protein. And not only is it getting enough protein, but it's getting the good stuff, the right stuff, but also the stuff that's ethically sourced. And what I love about Maui Nui is they are the only stress-free, 100% wild harvested meat on the market. And the other amazing thing is that Maui Nui venison has the highest protein per calorie. So what I find is that I end up eating less. There's up to 53% more than grass-fed beef. And instead of, oh, I'm eating more because it's so nutrient-dense, I actually end up eating less. I feel satisfied. My body gets what it needs. And it's really it's so easy to use. I just use it like I would any other protein and it shows up right to your door and it's not gamey. That's the other thing. I think we've all, our palates have kind of gotten weird with some of the stuff that we buy at the markets that a lot of times we think, oh, things taste gamey. This isn't gamey at all. And they have a lot of other products. They've got a natural jerky stick with 10 grams of protein and only 55 calories. And you can eat at any time and it's an easy snack. Maybe you're on the road, you're at work. It's something that's so delicious and again, really easy. They've got bone broths with 25 grams of protein. So you can cook with it, or if you just want to sip it, they make that really easy. So if, if you want to learn more, they have a beautiful offer for you today. Go to MauiNuiVenison.com. And if you put in slash Gabby, you'll get 20% off your first order, including the first subscription to their limited Ohana membership box. So again, that's Maui nuivenison.com slash Gabby, M-A-U-I-N-U-I-V-E-N-I-S-O-N.com slash Gabby. Oh, and I really just want to throw this in because obviously the Maui fires have been a you know really big deal and they recently succeeded in donating 30,000 pounds of nutrient-dense proteins to families affected by Maui's recent fires. And they'll be launching, and this is what I love, a buy one, share one pound program in November. So head to Maui Nui Venison. And did I mention it shows up right to your door? So they make it as easy as possible and as stress-free as it possibly can be for you. And it's delicious and you can feel good about it. This podcast is brought to you by Blissey. Now, I first learned about Blissey by one of my daughters. She asked me if she could order one of these special pillowcases. And at my house shows up a Blissey silk pillowcase. And I thought, okay, really, what's the difference? And, you know, they do their research. And what I learned is that the Blissey silk pillowcases, they're temperature regulating and have a natural insulating property. So if let's say you're a person who sweats or overheat while you sleep, Blissey works for you because it stays cool throughout the night so that you're not constantly waking up, sweating around your neck or flipping over and moving your pillow all over the place. And on top of that, 
it's also really good for your hair. And that's why my daughter wanted it. Let's face it. Her deal wasn't the heat. Her hair was like, oh, my hair, because it reduces frizz, tangles, and it prevents hair breakage. And I thought, there's no way. What's the big difference? Okay, silk, satin, and and I. she let me know. She said, listen, this has something called a 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. And I thought, okay, what does that mean? And she said, well, silk does not absorb the moisture off your face. And so that's the other part. For a lot of women, they use it because it's really better for your skin, for you know, dry, flaky, red skin in the morning that you just wake up with healthier hair and skin. And me, I'm always interested in materials. So it's the pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic. See, that really interested me. So you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes. It's good for anyone who's got allergies it is the highest quality silk and they are machine washable because for me, I like nice things, but if anything's too precious or I have to like take it somewhere special, it's like, I can't, you know, it's like one and done who can use it. It's durable and they even have a zipper. So it holds your pillow in place. I really like that. It's thoughtful. It's got all kinds of colors. So who, if whoever likes a certain color or a pattern, they've got you covered. It really makes a great gift too. I've given them as gifts because you think, Oh, how am I going to use this? But Think about it every single night and who doesn't appreciate anything that supports better sleep. And they have a wonderful offer. So Blissy Silk Pillowcases are really the best silk pillowcases on the market. And remember, they've got a color for everybody. Even guys like them. They have over 1.5 million fans raving about them. And now you can try it risk-free for 60 nights. I think that gives you enough time to figure out if the Blissy Pillowcase is for you. Just head to blissy.com slash Gabby. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash Gabby. And you will get an additional 30% off. That's blissy.com slash Gabby. Or go ahead and just use the code Gabby at checkout to save 30% off. This podcast is brought to you by Vionic Shoes. I personally have been wearing Vionic when they wanted me to read the ads. So I got a pair. I got the Georgie slipper. I even got a pair of really cute loafers, but I love the Georgie slipper and I left it by the front door. You know, it's, it's starting to get cold out. I don't know about you. I even wearing long sleeve, maybe some sweaters. Um, and so I leave them there because they're really easy to use. They match with a lot of things. They're very, very comfortable. But then I, I like to hear the running commentary for my daughters. And lo and behold, my youngest daughter was like, these are really cute. And I thought, okay, we have something because, you know, she never likes anything that I wear. And the truth is I want to wear things that are comfortable. And what I love about Vionic, besides that they use rich leathers and suede for your work wear favorites, they've got weather ready boots for trips. You know, it's like whether you're going to the airport, it's starting to get cooler. It's holiday season. You're walking around. They even have performance sneakers and that, you know, they're meant to keep you moving and you know how I feel about that. But because they're so comfortable, they began by revolutionizing medical orthotics. And I know that's the first thing you think you, oh, orthotics. But today they continue to use the science to engineer shoes that leave you feeling energized and confident all day. I don't know about you. There is nothing worse than wearing shoes that are uncomfortable. And then usually you feel like, okay, I've got comfortable shoes, but they're not attractive, or I've got these really cute shoes, but they hurt my feet. Well, Bionic has both. And they even offer a 30-day guarantee, wear them, love them, or return for a full refund within 30 days. So that's a long time to figure out. 
hey, does this work for my lifestyle, what I need, what I'm looking for? And finally, one last thing that I love about this brand, besides that they have a great offer for you today, several of the styles come in a 12. I think I even saw a 13 and all the styles go up to 11. And so I don't know about you, but that is a big deal. The shoes are really beautiful. They've got some water repellent boots. Maybe you're looking for something like that. All you have to do is head to Vionic Shoes. That's V-I-O-N-I-C-S-H-O-E-S.com. And when you log in, if you punch in the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout, you will get 15% off your entire order. And that is a one-time use only. So it's VionicShoes.com. Don't forget, put in the code GABBY for your savings. Are you still letting yourself get bored from time to time? And and how do you do that? How are you doing that? Yeah, my way of getting bored. So getting bored, as I argue in my last book, The Comfort Crisis, uh, important because it gives your brain a break. There's some interesting neuroscience behind that. But it also, I think a lot of research suggests that it's good for coming up with good ideas. And uh, so this is why people tend to have their best ideas in the shower. Because you're not like, you can't do anything. You can't be like scrolling Instagram. You can't be, you know, whatever. Um, So I try to go on a walk every day for at least 20 minutes. And I do it outside because uh, there's something about being outside that I think is good for mental health too. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of research that suggests time in nature is good for attention. Uh, it's good for productivity. It's good for creativity. It's good for all these things. Um, and frankly, you know, we try and rationalize everything, but with like, a, Oh, a study said this, but like people feel better when they're in nature and that's enough. So I I do my 20 minute walks and uh when I have a good idea I might like write it down on a little piece of paper or something. So yeah, definitely I definitely try to although I mean the attention capture industry that we live in is definitely real. Yeah, it's I I was talking to you before we started and and uh saying like I I was feeling a little more inefficient and that my ability to be disciplined has is working against me because also it's like, Oh, well, I'm sitting at my desk. It's like, yeah, but what are you really doing? I think I I'm really having to take a look at, um, being chained to all the, or self-chained to these devices. Okay. I've answered every email. I'm trying to get back to every person and being comfortable with, uh, unplugging from all of that. I, I think in the end will will make me if my desire is to do more, I think that that's really one of the ways to do it for your for your practices, your own personal practices I know I know you get outside, but you you've been in the space and reported on health and fitness a really long time. Um, and and also I found something interesting where you talked about people don't have to be social to be happy. I thought I I thought that that was a really, you know, cause it, you know, you sort of want to think, I, I think the studies show you want to feel like there is somebody to call if you, something happens, like somebody cares, but maybe you could elaborate on um, even just this idea of maybe people can do this alone too. Cause I think, I don't know. I don't, and you, you'd know better than I do. 
I feel like people feel isolated so much already. And so it's always like trying to encourage them like, hey, find your tribe and do all that. And I think that there's something true to that. But you're also saying, hey, there's other ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think that um, obviously you need some people close to you uh, as a way to, as a path to happiness. But I think when you when you look at some of what we would consider the happiest people of all time, they're often people who spend a lot of time alone, who are okay with, you know, going out to meditate in a cave for 30 days or like Jesus wandering in the desert for 40 days. Um, I think when we have time where we're totally alone, it's, it's not always easy, but I think that it allows us to better understand ourselves and what we stand for and get, as strange as it sounds, get more comfortable being alone. Because to me, it's great if you have friends, but if the moment that your friends are away, you start to crack up, like that's not good either. So to me, like the ability to be alone and be in solitude and be okay with that, comfortable with that, I think that allows you to be able to depend on and count on yourself. And also when you go into a sort of social situation and social, social world, to be able to help others more. Because you've got yourself to fall back on. And it's like, now I can help other people. And now I can really appreciate this time with others as well. And I, I do think you see that in some of the research. So in the book, I spent um, a week with these Benedictine monks in the mountains of New Mexico. And they're really fascinating because they live together, but they're not really social at all. Like they only get a couple hours of talking to each other a day. There's some that just literally live like out in the woods alone and they only come and get food every few days. And a lot of the research shows that they're far happier than the average person. Yet they're doing all these things that I think we would traditionally think of as not being great for happiness. Like they do manual labor every day. Like they don't talk to a lot of people all the time. Like their life is actually hard in a lot of ways. They got to get up really early to go pray. Really but, early. <laughs> really early. Really like 15 in the morning. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I, I got up one. I, I joined them and I was just like, holy hell. <laughs> this, is a, this is a tough life. Um, but they're happy. And so I think that really the message is that in sort of the, the way that research is conducted and the way that media focuses on research, um, we're always going to find hear about some next thing that's going to make us happy. All right. It's like today, it's like, you got to be social yesterday. It was, you got to, I don't know, eat beets. And the day before that, it was like, you gotta, you gotta exercise 150 minutes a minute a week, whatever it is. But I think the reality is, is that happiness is always just going to be a moving target. I think that, you know, humans weren't necessarily designed to be permanently happy because a permanently happy person slacks off. And in the past, you could never slack off, right? We're always kind of looking for the next thing. Uh, I think the lesson from the monks is that happiness probably will never be found in sort of these, you know, the next meal, the next purchase, like, oh, I became friends with that person. Now I'm good to go. Like, it, it just doesn't work that way. I think that um, it ultimately comes down to realizing that there are things bigger than yourself, and it's being willing to sort of engage in the search and the struggle and being willing to ask bigger questions, being willing to get to know yourself better and just try and help other people. I mean, that is ultimately the message that sort of gets embedded in all these different religions. And 
even though we're becoming less religious as a society, I do think a lot of those traditional messages still ring true today, that it's not going to be some, you know, the next car, the next whatever it is, and that it's going to be hard. But if you focus more on just doing the next right thing, you're probably going to look back and find yourself happy. I really appreciate, you know, that point because it's interesting. You look at social media, right? And now everybody's a self-proclaimed life coach. And it's funny. So we're doing away with religion, which obviously has, uh, you know, some of it, I mean, the, the shame or the guilt and all of that. I don't think that that was really the original concept behind some of, some of these bigger ideas. But of course you get people who get in there and they mess around with the rules, but it's like, you still see that it's in us to be looking for that no matter what. So now we're, we're sort of killing, okay, the big religions, but yet you see people showing up on social media and they're all, it's all the same direct. Let's take a quiet moment. Let's help each other. It's funny how those principles will still show up because it's like, we know deep inside that we, we need those things. We, we want a group of people that we can kind of be around and agree on some sort of worldview. And I think today it gets expressed in a lot of different ways to your point with like the wellness influencers, but also you look at, you know, diet culture. It's like some people talk about their, you know, carnivore diet, whatever it is, like, just like a religion, it's the exact same behavior as like a fundamentalist uh, person in a fundamentalist religious order, you know? Um, so that sort of search sometimes gets transferred to some strange places today, unfortunately. Do you think without overstepping, do you think you would consider having children? That's a good question. Um, I don't think it's off the table. I don't think it's right on the table. <laughs> it's maybe at the corner that it's maybe at the corner of the table and there's two people looking at the corner of the table going, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, well, cause I just we'll imagine with all the research that you do, you, you know, you have a different view on human, human behaviors, dynamics. And I often wonder if that makes that conversation, a, you know, like, well, do we really want to bring another person in? I, I, I wonder what people of your generation are experiencing because our group, it was still the given and the drive. And that's sort of what you did if you found somebody. And I feel like the, the group's a bit younger than myself, that they're really having a different conversation. Yeah, I think. I think so. I think, um, you know, we've thought a lot about, I think there is a, in my generation questioning that you just have children, like you just gotta have, you just gotta have kids. Um, and I think there, but we do, <laughs> when we talk to people, there are a lot of people who want to know, like, are you going to have kids? You know? And, um, when you talk to people who have kids, all of them will say, it's like the most important thing that ever happened to me. And so I do think that there is some there, there, um, but at the same time, I guess the question for a person who doesn't have kids and maybe won't have kids, including myself, is, you know, it seems to me like having kids is an act of getting out of yourself and having to go through a lot of hardship for a while that comes with um, extreme lows, but also extreme highs that ultimately becomes very rewarding in the long term. It's like this... 18 plus year struggle or whatever it is. Right. But then you get to see like this, you're building this, helping build this thing. And so, and I'm just kind of talking out of my ass right now because I don't yeah. have kids, but it's like, to me, it's okay. Well, how can I mimic something similar in my own life? And I don't know if it's, um, you know, finding some big 
volunteer thing to take on some big project like that. Um, but I do think it'll probably be important for me at some point to be like, okay, like what's, what's sort of the big, what's the big project, you know? Yeah, no. And I appreciate you being willing to talk about it. I just am always curious with, as things change and, uh, you know, if I was at the time in my life where I was thinking about having children, given all of the kind of, at least the messages that get sent, whether it's true or not, I think people are just getting hammered with a lot of, you know, scary messages and people constantly, no one's, you know, even remotely able to listen to one another's points of view. So it feels like everyone's in an argument. And I was just curious because, um, you know, we, it's hard. And with technology, I think the idea of raising a child almost feels like it's even that much more out of your control. Like it, you know, at least I was fooled when I was going to have my kids that thinking, oh, and then technology kind of showed up and you went, oh yeah, we'll make some rules and whatever. And then you realize like, oh, wait a second, this thing is even bigger than me. And unless we move to the forest, it's kind of like you're sharing your family and your kids with technology. It's like a whole idea. So I just wondered as somebody like you, so I would love to know what your principles are just for you, where you're at right now. They could be different the next time I talk to you because things change. Just kind of your principles around your own self-care. Um, you know, I, I know you say you get outside in nature, but when you're eating or uh, just your own sort of real pillars for your for your health. I So for me, I probably think that exercise is the most important thing that a person could do for their health. Um, that in addition to staying within um, a certain weight range, which is I don't be too big. So when it comes to exercise, I do a lot of rucking because I think that that's a particularly uh, potent form of cardio that seems to spare muscle rather than, um, burn it like some forms of cardio can. Um, I do a lot of, uh, I do, I lift a couple days a week, but a lot of my stuff is just outdoors in nature. So I write a lot about, and I do this more, this, there's probably a little bit of this in the comfort crisis, but, um, I have a sub stack where I write about this a lot. It's at, um, it's called 2%. And I think that there's something about exercise in nature that is really important for people. So when you look at the context of how humans evolved to uh, exercise, one, we didn't actually exercise. We were doing what we would call living life, <laughs> right? So exercise is physical activity for the sake of that, for the sake of it. That never made sense until about 150 years ago. And the context in which people were physically active uh, was always outside. It's on this rough, untamed landscape, and you're often doing something in the process of being physically active. So when, as we evolved to run, for example, so we could run down uh, animals and spear them for dinner. So people might think that's just a physical act. It's like, no, that's only half the battle. Like tracking an animal is really hard. Pacing yourself. You're also having to think about foot placement along the way. You're having to figure out where in space am I so I can get back. Like this is a long way of saying that outdoor exercise, the way that we evolved to do it was really stimulating in a lot of different ways took a lot of different work, not just physically. And once we sort of, you know, the industrial revolution happens and we start to go, okay, well, we need to start moving more. We invent gyms and gyms are like this indoor temperature controlled 
comfortable. Everything is pre-selected. You know, you pick the exact pace of your treadmill. And how we moved for a million years was never like that at all. And so for me, the, the way to get back to that is trying to find more ways to be physically active outside. And I do think there is some good research backing this from, there's a guy at uh, USC, University of Southern California, named David Reichland, who uh, does a lot of research on how doing more exercise outside where you're having to account for all these different things in the environment, it probably has a more beneficial effect on the brain over time and can lead to um, better adaptations for people and help fend off, you know, potentially age-related diseases. And not to mention, I mean, it's just harder. Like you're going to encounter hills. You're going to encounter, you're going to get too far from home and be like, well, now I got to go back home. Whereas with the treadmill, it's just like, I'm tired. Smash the stop button, (laughs) right? So that's something I think about a lot too and write a lot about and try and think about how do we weave that into our life in an intelligent way and what are the benefits and all that sorts of thing. I, I do think that the way that we tried to solve for being inactive once our jobs got behind desks, we're still figuring it out. We're in an early stage of figuring it out. And I think we know a lot less than we think we know. Well, first of all, it makes me think about I've gone on hikes where I've waited too long to go. And then by the time you're there, you realize it's way hotter than you thought. I'm thinking you must experience this a lot. And you think, oh, I should have come here two hours earlier or four hours later. Now I'm halfway through and the sun is baking and you're just in it. Like that's what you're doing. Like you're in it, you know, do you, uh, do you have, do you wear special footwear or anything like that? Uh, it depends on what I'm doing. So if I, I do a lot of trail running and for trail running, I've found that something that is minimal ish esque, I would call it. So like I used to go just totally minimal and I actually found that I'm better with a little bit of a drop. And then with rucking, if I'm using a significant amount of weight, I find that more support is probably better if you have weight on your back. Um, yeah. So I kind of, it's just, what's the tool for the job. And then what about hacking? Because you are, in, you know, informed and investigative. Do you have any things that you would consider a hack? I try to really be cognizant of when my, when a behavior is um, bordering on when it's helping me and when it's bordering on superstition. So I feel like if, a if the issue that I've had with um, like super specific routines is that I think people can become so married to them that they, they think that if I don't do this one part of this routine, then the rest of the day falls apart. And to me, that is no different than a, than a baseball player going, if I don't pull on my hat three times, then this fastball is not going to land. And so I think a lot of what I think about is like, what, back to our idea of removing things is often better. It's like, what is my ultimate goal? And what can I remove that isn't helping me get there? And what things can I add in that do seem to help me get there? So I'll, I'll bring it back to, I mean, my main goal has always been writing, you know? Um, so I get up early because that is my sort of golden time to write. And I used to do a handful of things before I would write. And I realized like, are these things helping you get words on the page? And the answer was no. So I, now I just, I make a cup of coffee and I start writing. (laughs) So I found that it was, they had become sort of superstitious behaviors. It's like, I got to meditate 10 minutes before I write, because then I'll get in the zone. And it's like, how do you measure whether there's any correlation between this meditation and like whether a sentence is going to be good? In fact, I might write a better sentence if I'm kind of aggravated, you know? (laughs) So um, trying to find where your habits um, have become teetered into the superstitious 
area and where they're actually helping you, I think is something useful in the context of today where we're told to do 17 different things. You must do 17 different things before you can ever do a good thing in your day. And are you sticking true to just kind of less ingredient type foods and just eating real food and until you're full? And you, you seem like a moderate person. You don't seem like a person who, if you had a bite of pie, you'd eat the whole thing or something. Yeah, well, give me a drink and you'll, you'll find out. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, I mostly just do try and stick to one ingredient for most of the things I eat. So I, I still hunt. And so that gives me like a supply of really great meat. And I'll do that with like rice or potatoes and some vegetables. And that's pretty much a standard. In the morning, I'll eat like maybe oatmeal and eggs and then once you eat that way, it doesn't matter if, you know, sometime across the week you encounter a pie and decide you're going to have a slice or two of it. Yeah, I, I like that. And what about supplements? Has anything shown up that you go, this feels important to me or? Yeah. So I, for a while, I was very disillusioned with supplements. And um, then I, this is kind of a weird thing, but one of my best friends from college, he took a job with this company, Momentus. Yeah, And there, you know, he started telling me about him. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You took a job with a supplement company. And um, I started looking into him and it's, it's a really good company. Um, they've got all these contracts with the government and they, they just put a ton of research and into their products and make sure that they're solid, that you can trust them, which a lot of companies don't. And so I've started to use some of their stuff like their, I mean, just their multivitamin is like, it just covers your basis. It's like, that's like an easy win right there. Um, if I have days where I feel like I'm not getting enough protein, I like their vegetable protein, uh, powder. It's got some special name plant protein. I don't know. Um, magnesium. I seem to do sleep better on for whatever reason. I'll take that before bed. And that could just be because I'm out sweating so much that I get well, magnesium does mag magnesium's part of like 72 processes done in the body or something like you just can't go wrong. Yeah. And I think that I, I did a, um, on that 2% site that I mentioned, I did this sort of deep dive into what, uh, what vitamins and minerals are people actually, um, insufficient in. Yeah. And ma magnesium was one that a lot of people are actually pretty insufficient in. I can't remember the exact uh, number off the top of my head, but I think it was maybe 50. Yeah. Could have been 20. Um, so that one I'm trying to think what else are you doing creatine or D or anything like that? Oh yeah. Yeah. So now you start asking and I, I remember, yeah, I do do creatine. Um, I do do D and when I, pretty much the only meat I eat is the meat that I've hunted. Um, I don't eat a ton of animal products. So if I'm on the road, and I can't do that. I will take a liver supplement just to make sure that I'm getting enough iron and B12. Yeah, that that's smart. So the process of writing, I mean, I feel like you got this book out pretty quickly. Am I, is that a wrong assumption? I think it was pretty quick. Yeah, I <laughs> wish I would have had like another month. I definitely fell under the gun sometimes. <laughs> What's, what do you, what's, what's percolating for you? Is there something that's shown up for you that you're going to dive in or it's a secret? Oh, for a third book, you know, I'll probably do a third book and I've got some ideas, but my editor and I talk every now and then, every time we talk, there's the book is a slightly different 
idea and which tells me we don't know what the idea is yet. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, a lot of my efforts now I've been putting in the sub stack, which I put out three times a week. And, um, that's been pretty fun and rewarding because it's a, it's more immediate communication with the people who are interested in what I write. Whereas a book is like, it came out and people are like, Oh, we loved it. When's the next one coming out? And you're like, well, you know, contact me in three years. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so is this, and your Substack? it's the 2% club. What is it under exactly? Is it under your name? Yeah, it's called 2% with Michael Easter and the website is twopct.com. And then is a lot of what you then dive deeper into stimulated by the audience asking specific questions. And so you say, Oh, I'm going to look into that. Yeah. A lot of it is people will ask questions. They'll email me questions. A lot of it is, you know, I'm still ultimately a journalist in the sense that, um, you know, I'm not the person with the PhD doing the studies in the lab. I'm the person who talks to the person with the PhD doing the studies in the lab and tries to translate it into something that's useful and practical. Um, the upside of that though, is that I can talk to that. It turns out that people who do studies in labs often disagree. (laughs) So I can talk to both sides and kind of try to kind of some, try, I try to come to some practical conclusions for people on topics that may be confusing. Um, Maybe, you know, they've heard multiple points of view. So I try and, you know, be pretty reasonable and get to the bottom and also realize that everyone's different because, you know, sometimes you might hear a message, but it's like, oh, that message is actually geared for athletes, but we didn't say that. Or this message is geared for sedentary people, but we didn't say that. This is geared um, or like most sports research was conducted on dudes, but we're trying to like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, things like that, I try and be rather clear on. I hope it's useful. (laughs) I'm sure it is. If you, especially just all those little small variations, I think women weren't part of studies until 1996 or something like that. Right. And, you know, you see from like Stacey Sims or whatever that athletic or performing women perform better fed, not fasted. And forever it was like, why am I ripping my hair out? My husband's like, oh, I feel great. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to kill somebody. I don't know who, but when I'm, you know, fasting, um, if you could make one invitation to people um, that feels important to you, given all, it could just be the invitation of today. It doesn't have to be one that in you know you would make next week, but just that something that's been occurring to you, whether it's about managing their scarcity brain or their loops or dealing with technology or or just. Um, you know, the way that they're moving or eating, if there was something that felt important, what would that be? Yeah. Well, I think that everyone has at least one or two habits that they wish they can change. And going back to what I said at the beginning is that I think that our bad habits have a bigger impact than do adding good new ones. So it's like everyone wants to give gas to good new habits, but if you still have your bad ones, you still got your foot on the brake. And so I hope that the the book scarcity brain it helps you understand why you have bad habits in the first place and that bad habits aren't because you're deficient and a bad person and you shouldn't be, feel bad for them uh, about them but they are your issue to fix right it's like once you're aware of that it's like you don't have to feel bad about it but like yeah let's let's work on this thing and so hopefully people leave with some tools and i will also say that changing bad habits is very possible and I've seen it everywhere and it doesn't matter what it is. I think that, I don't think that anyone can't change something, whether it's, you know, 
you're eating way too much, whether it's you're like me and you were drinking way too much, whether it's drugs, whether it's gambling, whether it's you buy too much, whether it's insert any million other bad habits a person could have today. Cause it's almost like our society is set up to lead us into overdo something. And I do think that, yeah, change is possible for sure. Uh, and it starts with kind of understanding what the underlying mechanics are and getting to the sort of deeper reasons. And that's not always going to be easy, but I do think it is very worthwhile and rewarding. I think getting help, like having someone or people to talk to when you're going through these things, not to continue the same loop, but almost to create an accountability, I think is is really great. So, Michael, my last question is, and just because you're a partner to somebody and you have lived a minute, what is either um, something that has really been a valuable approach to being in a relationship from your side, like the way that you've conducted or acted that um, seems to be impactful. Cause I think what we go in with and the knowledge we go into a relationship with versus once we're in it and it's dynamic and we're trying to learn and improve and make things flow and smooth um, different things show up for us. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, I think it's useful to try and understand why, people are the way they are. So I'll give you an example and I hope she doesn't get mad, but <laughs> my wife likes to um, keep the house exceedingly order orderly, like museum, like, and to me, I've always been like, we live in a museum. Like, why does this matter at all? Right? Like, why are you so uptight about this? But until I realized that it's because when like she kind of lived in chaos as a kid. And so if you could keep your house orderly, it would just make her feel more calm. Like these things are in order. I feel good. I feel safe here. Great. Now I'm using her as an example, but the reality is, is we all have something like that. And so I think that figuring out what your thing is, uh, and what your, what the other person's thing is rather can help you understand why they're like that in the first place. Cause once I understand that, I realize, oh, it's not that she's weird. It's like, this is how she works. And like, maybe I should just pick up the damn dishes, Michael, <laughs> you know, and so, so sort of simple things like that. It's like your job as a, as a partner is not to try to prove whether this thing is good or bad. It's just to do the thing that will make your spouse happy often. And I'm sure, and I have things like that too, that she's learned to live with as well. It's like, you know, my, my mom is definitely a little bit of a chaotic person for sure. And so I kind of grew up where chaos is just sort of the norm. And so like you go into my office and it's like, you know, things are kind of, there's a lot of stuff. And like, she comes in here and she's just like, oh my God, this is just too much. But, but for her, you know, she's like, that's your space. That's cool. Yeah. But the living room. That's the museum. <laughs> so yeah. I understand. I always joke that when you see me wiping down my counters, I'm trying to keep myself out of fight or flight. I'm trying to control yeah. like a six foot space. Something's in control. So I think yeah. it's, a, I think, and I don't want to say it's more feminine, but they say we're sort of prone to kind of certain tendencies a little more. So it's, it is a reaction. Okay. I want to finish by just reading this, what you ended your book with, because it's, it's, uh, it's basically from, uh, I think father Matthew, Am I, if I'm getting this right. So it says, so perhaps happiness is the dramatic effort of a long and hard walk with seemingly no destination. The terrain is rough and the weather isn't always perfect. It's a stroll into an abyss, 
But at some point along the way, by trying to make each step a bit less about our immediate desires, we realize we're happy, even though the journey hasn't ended. And so I just, your scarcity brain, I thought you took us on some adventures. I went to a lot of different places and just even talking to, you know, experts and there's so many characters in this book and professors and, you know, going, going abroad. I just really appreciated all the ways that you came at reminding us that, um, we're navigating a lot more things that are built in than we, than we realize. And, and, um, if we can just understand them a little better that, you know, it makes that journey, uh, it just makes it easier. So, um, Michael remind everybody all of the places that they can find you. Yeah. Um, the website I mentioned where I write three times a week is uh, called 2% and it's at T-W-O-P-C-T. And then I'm on the socials at, at Michael underscore Easter. And yeah, I think that, I think that's probably, oh, and the book is called Scarcity Brain. Yeah. Scarcity Brain. And when, when was the exact date? It came out pretty recently. Yeah. It came out last week. Yeah. So here, I'll we're on top of it. You get the video. There's the cover. There you go. I like it. Well, I can't wait. I'm like I said, I'm, I'll be around when you're talking about, um, and I won't even. I really encourage people to read this book because you do a section on numbers that's fascinating. Also, I really appreciated that. So, I'll be I'll be excited to see when you're talking about. Uh, I don't know. We'll see what's going to be next. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I've enjoyed this conversation just like I enjoyed the last one, and hopefully, we keep having more in the future. Michael Easter, everyone. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Neurohacker. I personally have been taking Qualia Mind for over six months now when I got introduced to this product. You know, I like to try everything before I talk about it. And of course, I was curious because it has to do with supporting cognitive function and memory. And for me, you know, I have the eating down pretty good and the moving consistently. I've got that, but it's just the lists, like life. It feels like at times the lists kind of are closing in on me. And I don't know about you. It's like when you start forgetting things like, oh, I forgot that at work and I actually misplaced my keys today, things that for me, I don't normally do. And so I'm always looking for interesting products that can support me that way. And Neurohacker combines 28 of the most research-backed neurotropic ingredients on earth into the ultimate brain fuel formula. And that's Qualia Mind. And it, people have been taking it for years and really seeing the difference. What I really appreciate too, is that it's research backed. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are really meant to complement one another. So like I said, with the research, they're factoring in each ingredient's effect on supporting mental clarity. I will share with you also that I took the Senolytics. They have a two-day program and it made me feel, for me personally, just kind of this homeostasis. And if you've never tried a product like this, it's backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee. So you have almost three months to really try quality of mind for yourself at no financial risk. And then you can say, hey, how do I feel when I take it, when I don't? Because I think that's the most important thing. I think we can share things with each other, but we have to know what works for us. So if you really want to see for yourself, all you have to do is go to neurohacker.com. This way you can find out for yourself really what the best brain formula on earth can do for you and your mindset. 
So that's neurohacker.com. And if you go slash Gabby, you'll get up to $100 off your quality of mind. And as a listener of the Gabby Reese Show, you can use the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout for an additional 15% off any purchase. So that's neurohacker.com, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com slash Gabby, or, and use the code Gabby at checkout for an additional 15% off to experience life-changing mental performance from Qualia Mind. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. All you have to do is go to gabriellereese.com or head to the episode show notes to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, podcasts, and so much more. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out and send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. And if you feel inspired, please subscribe. I'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Laird Superfood. In 2015, Laird Superfood was created, but it was really actually created in my kitchen by my husband, Laird. And he was always experimenting with coffees and other ingredients for performance. And lo and behold, Laird Superfood was born. And we have beautiful coffees and creamers and protein bars and other things. But one of the things I'm very excited about is our new greens product. A lot of Americans are not getting enough fruits and vegetables. Something like 85% are not getting enough vegetables and 80% are not getting enough fruit. And we need fiber. So for me personally, I'm always trying to encourage people, and I know this is Laird's philosophy as well, is real food, right? Let's try to get as much of the good stuff, the minerals, the nutrients, the macro, the micronutrients from real food, but it's hard to do. Our soil's different. People are busy. Maybe you don't know what you're getting at your grocery store. So this is a way to get it done and bridge some of those nutritional gaps. And what I also really appreciate about it, besides that it tastes good, I just do it in water first thing in the morning, then I'm done. And then I actually go and have my coffee after. But we use upcycled fruits and veggies, so things that won't go to waste. Maybe they're not really pretty, so we use them in our fruits and veggies. We use no fillers. So your body actually knows what to do with the ingredients. They know how to absorb it. There's fiber. And also, we never use any artificial or natural flavors. Uh, This is something that is harder than people realize because to amplify flavors, a lot of times even, you know, using natural flavors is the way to do it. So I'm excited to share with you. And if you'd like to try it out, all you have to do is go to layeredsuperfood.com. And if you punch in the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y 20, you will receive 20% off. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.